The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Hey everybody, this episode is a couple of different things. First of all, it's a sort of continuation of the last episode. Deb and I continue to try to unravel and decode and discuss a bunch of the insights that came out during the Robert T. Sell interview. One of the things that we don't discuss in this episode that Dr. T. Sell did discuss was their upcoming network meta-analysis. And I know that sounds complicated and daunting, but this effort by Dr. T. Sell and Marcus Sakely is going to make all of our jobs easier easier through some sort of statistical wizardry that I imagine involves spinning several Excel files at once. They've come up with a way to pit treatment options against each other, a sort of battle bots or boxing match where the treatments that never saw each other in the arena of clinical trials go head to head. As I understood it, if therapy X is compared to therapy Y and therapy Z is compared to therapy Y, you can then compare therapy X to therapy Z, even though they haven't directly been compared. That network meta-analysis, they're going to publish somewhere, they think, around the end of November. And they promised us that they'll keep us in the loop. So yeah, for anyone interested in this stuff, it'll give real insight into what works and what doesn't work in head-to-head comparisons. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show, a couple of different ways that you can do it, either through Venmo at our handle. Is that what it's called, handle? Anyway, the handle is at neurons. But we also have a PayPal QR code. That's the scannable code that you can scan with your phone. And that's on the show notes. We are super excited to have a bunch of great guests coming up, including OT vision expert, Mary Warren. Doctors Barbara Zupan and Don Newman are going to discuss how to recover emotional responses in people that have had brain injury. Then we have occupational therapist, Jenica Gardner-Colvin and her colleague, physical therapist, Suzanne McCrum. Jenica is the owner of Trio Rehabilitation and Wellness Solutions. And both of them, physical and occupational therapists are certified stroke rehabilitation specialists, and they work down in Bernie, Texas, which is just north of San Antonio. And last but not least, later in October, we will speak with Dr. Bradford Burke. Bradford C. Burke, MD, PhD. He's a board-certified cardiologist, distinguished university professor in medicine, neurology, pathology, pharmacology, and physiology, and physical medicine and rehabilitation. He is the founder and the director of University of Rochester Neurorestitution Institute. And we'll be talking about his new book, Getting Your Brain and Body Back, everything you need to know after spinal cord injury, stroke, or traumatic brain injury. And Dr. Burke knows what he's talking about. He was permanently paralyzed after a biking accident in 2009. So we have a bunch of really important stuff coming up. So stay tuned, kids.
an easy question for you to answer from J.E. She is wondering, is there ever a time when spasticity turns itself off? Yes, there is a time when it turns off and that's when they're sleeping. Then that had implications for things like a splint that you can't get on when they're awake. You might be able to get on when they're asleep. So my wife, this was another joke I used to tell in my talk. So my wife would say, yeah, I, I know about the splinting. And sometimes I would sneak into their room and I'd be very quiet. I wouldn't want to wake them. And then I would put the splint and she's a PT. So it was probably something on the lower extremity, um, a boot or something. And then I would sneak out. But that's not ethical, right? <laughs> so I'm like, right. maybe I should report you to the state board, Isla. But no, um, <laughs> um, I think as long as you ask permission first and every clinician that I told that joke to, they go, just ask first and you're, you're good. So you can do it if they're sleeping. And truly, if you want to get a real perspective on the amount of spasticity that they have, then it's good to do something like the modified Ashworth, which is a test of spasticity while they're sleeping, because that'll give you a true baseline. The other thing is, if you're confused about whether something is contracture or spasticity, then if it's contracture when they're sleeping, it'll still be evident as much as it ever was. Whereas if you let them fall asleep and you can move it, then you know it's just a whole lot of spasticity because sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a four on the Ashworth, which is, you know, can't move it and true contracture. But that is a way of sort of the differential diagnosis of that. in the American healthcare system. By the way, Dr. T. Cell was really hilarious about this because the average length of stay for a person with stroke in the United States, it's 17 days. Whereas in Canada, in just about every place in Europe, it's, it's 30 days. And he called what we do rehab light, I think he called it. They kind of like bud light, but it's rehab light. So, so that wasn't good. But these transitions, this reminds me of a question that you asked Dr. Tiesel, which was what about the trans transition from clinician to home and, and all the other transitions from hospital to rehab hospital, to skilled nursing facility, to home, and then discharge from that. And, and then you cordoned him off and you sort of forced him to answer the question because you thought it was really important. And he came up with this idea of a handoff. Mm -hmm. Are still the real leaders in that area. But what they were able to demonstrate was that, you know, if the same therapist treated the patient in the hospital and then treated them at home, that same therapist, they got much better results than if they did a handoff to uh, another therapist, right? And if there was no handoff, just a written note, they actually did a little worse. And so overall, early supportive discharge came back positive because that the specific studies that looked at that therapist continuity throughout had such positive results that it carried the rest of them, all right? And it speaks to the importance of continuity of care. Um, it's a really cool idea that showed up in that study and I think is, is something we all intuitively know, but don't practice very well. Um, we, we, we do have a lot of outpatient therapy in our center. And we do do a lot of the rehab in the patient's home. We have a special program for that that does the full rehab in the patient's home uh, or, or they come to the hospital, one or the other. And we've been working on this idea of a warm handoff to try and incorporate because I think it's too much of a paradigm shift for us to have the same therapist managing patients in the hospital and in the the community. And that's just too much for us to get our heads around. You know, we're not there yet, but we do do this thing called a warm handoff where, you know, the therapist that's going to be managing the community may come in for a day and study how they're doing near their, the end of their stay um, and can just easily then pick up. And it's interesting because we've had in the, the system that I used to work for, we had many meetings talking about how to be more consistent with care communication among therapists at the different levels of care. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is therapist communication among each other. When the person transitions from hospital to, let's say, skilled nursing and from skilled nursing to home, and then the thing he sort of didn't talk about is the one that you were talking about, which is translation from home care to the rest of your life and the home exercise and all that. So it's great because it smooths the rehab transition from rehab facility back to home. So the home care therapist goes and meets the therapist that they're going to take this hand off from. And they get to see the kinds of exercises they were doing, the equipment that they're interfacing with. And it 
gives the imagine, you know, all of a sudden you. Hi, it's uh, PT. I'm here to treat you. Oh, wait, I'm not even dressed yet. Uh, it's PT. I've come to help you. Yeah. Well, I don't know who the hell you are, first of all. But if I saw you in the hospital and you were talking to my therapist and my therapist and I kind of got along, maybe we can get along as well. So that's the idea. And I think that's great. And why don't we do that, Deb? I think it's a great idea too. And I don't know why we don't do it. And he said that the survivors have better outcome when there's that handoff that occurs. I think our argument would be we don't have the time for that. We don't have the resources. Just speculating. Yeah. Well, it always comes down to time, resources, the culture, the culture. Culture. So I'll tell you, I've mentioned this before. I was a float therapist for a number of years for the system that I worked for. I got to work in any facility where OT services were provided. And I had a schedule, but sometimes the schedule would change. Sometimes I would go to multiple multiple facilities in a day. And a lot of people that I worked with said they didn't know how I could do that and they would hate that. And some of the float therapists would get upset if they were told in the middle of the day that they had to leave where they were and go somewhere else. So I do think that it takes a certain type of uh, mindset and desire to do something like that. And I think a lot of people don't like change. So going somewhere makes people feel uneasy. If it's not your current and familiar work environment, going to a different one might make people feel uneasy. But remember, the the home therapist in this scenario is not really going there to work. They're there to meet and observe. But yeah, I get it. So they, you know, all of a sudden I have to go back into a hospital and I'm a home therapist. Maybe I'm not that comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe with yeah. COVID, it makes it even harder. So yeah, I yeah. can see that. I have a story. So I live in this community that is mainly older adults. And one day I was happily working from home here. My doorbell rings and I go to the door and before I even do anything, the person's hand is on the handle and they're opening my door. And I have cat-like reflexes when I need to. And I blocked the doorway and I said, may I help you? And she assured me that she was there for the appointment with me, but I was not the right person for her to see. So some of these people, some of these healthcare providers take their liberties a little too much. Oh, I see what you're where you went with that. I see. Okay. Yeah, I had an experience. So we had a visiting nurse come in to to do a treatment for my wife and I come to the door and I was like a little disheveled and I have my baseball cap on backwards and we live in a, a very nice neighborhood. And I, she gave me this look like I didn't belong there, but she did. I was like, what up? Oh yeah. yeah come on in. My wife's in the other room. Go ahead. Never introduced yourself. No. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So anyway, was, was there a point to any of that? Just um, the importance of communication and that warm handoff might avoid some of some interactions like uh, we had. Yeah. 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 So the therapist would have already seen the patient in the hospital. So now they'd recognize him, for instance. Yeah. And there's a level of trust already built because they've seen them within the health system. Of course, if they knock on the wrong door and they stick their hand in your door, then that hand's (laughs) going to get chopped off because you don't know, Deb, she will mess you up. Well, if that person didn't introduce themselves to me, they probably don't introduce themselves to their correct person. Yeah. So unlike pulling out a mirror to do a new kind of therapy, that's a primer. This is a little bit more sophisticated because what's being asked for is synergy between a clinician who works for company A and a clinician who works for company B. So it's a little bit harder to do, but boy, that would be really a good thing to do. Yeah. The other thing that he brought up during that part of the conversation was these reevaluations that get done and how that's a little redundant for patients. And I understand why we do them in our particular system. But when he was talking about that, it made me think about how sometimes um, healthcare providers think that patients aren't that smart and they are smart and they know that things are being repeated. And I've had people say to me so many times, you're the third person who's asked me those same questions. 
I know I'm sorry, you know, it's because it's how we do it, but how much more would we get out of them or from them or see their capabilities if we weren't annoying them? Hmm. And is this sort of in your head, is this have to do with the standoff because one set of clinicians isn't communicating with the next one? So I got to ask all these questions over again. Well, maybe, maybe because we can't see the previous documentation, or maybe it's just that we think we have to do it that way. And maybe we do. I don't know. I don't have a better process, but I, from the patient perspective, I can see where that would be a little challenging for them. The, the healthcare system in the United States is so fragmented and I blame the you know 700 different insurance companies all mm-hmm. trying to make a buck because then they don't want to share information, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, we just got another comment on the Facebook page. Can I read it to you and see if we can just we'll take like a little recess from what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So this is from MW and she is not going to be coming on our our show that I know of. So I'm not going to mention Not yet. Not yet, but we might drag her in. (laughs) All right. So here we go. MW says, what are some of the best, excuse me, excuse me, MW. What are some of the best evidence-based assessment tools for identifying coordination improvements related to arm function? Ooh, I can help that. I'm in an outpatient clinic right now. I'm using nine hole peg test finger to nose. Hmm. and rapid alternating movements to objectively look at coordination. But the nine hole peg only looks at one aspect of using a hand and the other two just identify the presence of the deficit or not. I find myself making progress with patients' abilities to use their arms functionally, but that can't necessarily objectively prove it. Thank you for your thoughts. Well, I'll tell you something, MW. I know that uh, Deb has some things to tell you, but I did 12 years of assessments of the upper extremity. And um, I can tell you a thing or two uh, as well. So Deb, do you want to, what do you want to talk about? I want to hear you talk. Uh, Well, I want to hear you talk. Okay. So look, here's one, um, the box and block, super simple to do. Uh, They transfer centimeter by centimeter blocks from one part of the box to the other. I'm sure you've heard of it. MW, so I don't need to go over it, but it isn't a simple one to do. But what it measures is grasp and release. And that's pretty important. I, I, I'm wondering what finger to nose means because in the Fugelmeyer, at the very tail end of it, we do the finger to nose five times as rapidly as possible from knee to nose. One, two, three, four, five. We time it and we do the the if you don't mind, the good side, and then we do the bad side. And there's a score for the discrepancy in how much slower the bad side is than the good side. There's a score for what's called dysmetria. How far off the target are you? And that changes the score. And then the other thing is when they're coming up, is it straight to the target? And I'm showing sort of, what would you call this? Like a Parkinsonian kind of thing where intention tremor. tremor. Yeah, it's a tremor. And as they get closer to the target, it gets harder for them to find the target. So across those three things, do you know of a standardized finger to nose? No. Yeah. That just, sounds like the most standardized to me, what you're talking about. Yeah. So if you look in the tail end of the upper extremity portion of the Fugelmeyer, it'll give you how to score those three. And MW, if you want, you can email me and I'll send it to you. I'll send you the whole damn Fugelmeyer and tell you how to do it if you want. So that was one interesting thing about Robert Teasel and how much he is liking the Fugelmeyer. And I've mentioned this to you before. I've done more Fugelmeyers than anybody else in the entire universe. And if they find another universe where they're doing the Fugelmeyer, I'll have done more than anybody there. I mean, we're talking about thousands of these tests. So you do an outcome measure in a clinical trial. Let's say a clinical trial is pretty small. You got 50 people. You do a pretest one and a pretest two to show that they're not getting any better or worse on their own. Then you might do one in the middle of the five weeks, then at the end of the five weeks, and then three months later, because you want to see if it's stuck. So within one patient, you're doing five Fugelmeyers, which I like to call the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer because it was really seeing a Brunstrom came up with it. Men, stop stealing women's work. Thank you. And so you're doing five just for that one participant. And if there's 50, you know, you're doing five times 50, which what is that? 250. So you, it just starts to accumulate and accumulate. And, you know, the Fugelmeyer is not impossible to do. Have you ever been in a system where it's not like you can't really figure it intellectually? It's just that there's all these little niggling details. That's the way the Fugelmeyer is. When we tested therapists on their ability to do the Fugelmeyer, 
we had them videotape them doing a Fugelmeyer because we had to show 90% reliability. We had a 50% fail rate. And this is after I went and taught them for two days straight. So I, I'm not super sure that I would hang my hat on any Fugelmeyer data, but I get uh, Robert Tsell's um, interest in the Fugelmeyer because it is always the primary outcome measure for the upper extremity. So box and block, the tail end of the Fugelmeyer, what are some of the other good ones for upper extremity measurement? I don't know. Nine Not hole peg for, test. Well, I do like the nine hole peg test. Mm. Um, Can you explain what it is? The, are mm-hmm. all the pegs like in front of them? They're in a little bowl and then they have to. They're in a, a, a square box and there are three rows of three and you have to position it at, at the person's midline and then they have to remove all of the pegs and put all of the pegs back in. And it's a timed test. So it's a good idea to have someone else time it. And I always started with the less affected side and then the more affected side and compared the two. And then, you know, would look at those results over time, depending on what setting I was looking, working in. Yeah. And with timing, things like timing, it's such a nuanced thing. So even if the person only cuts a a second off of something, that may be really important to that person for whatever they're doing. The other test is one that came up with Teresa Jones and comes up in a lot of discussions about stroke recovery, which is the action research arm test. I was just going to ask you about that. So it's, it's a kit, you buy it, it's a box and the box itself becomes the levels on which you have to place different objects from ball bearings to a cricket ball. And then there's cylinders that you have to put on posts. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, can they do it? And if they can do it, how long does it take them? There's a couple of other things uh, that we look at, um, but it's that kind of thing. And if you want a lot of different kinds of grasps in one simple kit, then that's probably a pretty good one uh, that you can look at. Well, there is the Minnesota rate of manipulation test. The what? I haven't heard of that. They only it's, do it in Minnesota though. You have to go to Minnesota to do it <laughs> and come back home. They use Thank that a lot in the um, the outpatient clinic where I did my level two field work. You can use it multiple ways. And then there's also the the Jebson hand function test. Now that has been in just about every clinic I've worked in, and we only used it for an activity intervention. We never used it to assess fine motor skills, which I mean, it's for fine motor skill assessment. Okay. And that was the Jepson, is that right? Yeah, J E B S E N, the Jepson hand function test. I've heard of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and hang on one second, because I'm just going to go over some of the nuances for the action research arm test. Okay. It's a score of three, two, or one. And a three is the task is done normally, and it has to be done within five seconds. So one of them is you pull a cylinder off of one post and you put it on another post. A score of three would be it looks normal compared to the unaffected side, you know, and it le- takes them less than five seconds. A score of two is given when the task is completed, but either with quote, great difficulty or takes abnormally long and abnormally long is five to 60 seconds. The great difficulty, I hate when they ask for judgment calls in these tests and they do it all the time, but we can, you can look, you're just really looking for intra-rater reliability that you agree with yourself. So just come up with what you think is great difficulty. Um, You know, are they maybe hiking their shoulder up and that becomes a score of two. Oh, and the great difficulty, they say uh, abnormal hand movement, the use of a wrong grasp, the elbow doesn't flex as it's supposed to, use of substitution kinds of movements. And a score of one is given when the subject partially completes the task within 60 seconds, um, regardless of the quality of the hand and arm movement. So there's a little nuance there, but all of these instructions are available. I think they may be um, part of T-Cell's EBRSR someplace. The Shirley Ryan Ability Lab has a huge portion of it dedicated to these outcome measures. But, you know, ma'am, um, Miss MW, email me. I'd be glad to help you with any of that stuff. But there's uh, three or four ideas. Do you have, if, if somebody had to choose between those two, the Fugelmeyer and the Action Research Arm Test, would you have a preference? Uh, so f- for what she's talking about, I would tend to go for the Action Research Arm Test. Um, you have to buy the kit. I, I made one and it looked like a kid that was working in wood shop. It looked like you made it. But we, it looks like we made it. <laughs> Left 
each other all the way to another love. Um, yeah, it looked like I made it and it was just an ugly thing, but we got, we did it. We used it for like seven years and then somebody, um, somebody manufactured one. Oh. Yeah. And they, and you can buy them now. Um, I, I'm just trying to think if I can put it in the show notes where, where you can buy that, but because it asks for less than the, this behemoth of the Fugelmeyer, I would say go for that. And it sounds like if it's, she's looking for something that's like the nine hole, it's probably more like the action research arm test. Mm-hmm. How long does that take to administer? The action research arm test? Yes. You know, it's always super fast if somebody's really high level or really low level. If they're really low level, they can't do anything. And you just kind of say, well, if he couldn't pick up that thing, he's not going to be able to pick up a ball bearing. So you can start to score. The Fugelmeyer is very much like that. The easy things are done up front, and then the scores start to go down rapidly. And soon you start to realize that, wow, if they can't move their arm at all, these are all zeros. So very high level people, it's quick because they just nail it. Very low level people are quick because they can't do anything. Um, So your question is for an average person who is at a Fugelmeyer of like, I don't know, 23 or so, mid twenties, I would say it would take about 20 minutes. And and that's with scoring it and the whole thing. So not too hard. So the great Doro from NeuroHub went in and and attempted to answer MW's uh, question about what's a good test for the upper extremity. And she said, what about the Wolf motor function test, which I don't know anything about, the action research arm test, which we discussed, but that's good that she answered that. And then the arm motor ability test, which is a test I hate. Um, We did a modified one and we've done the full one. You have to time each subtask of like upper body dressing, and then you have to score it uh, on two separate five-point scales. And it's just a nightmare. The whole thing's a nightmare. I I wouldn't recommend that, but uh, Doro knows what she's talking about. So maybe there's something there. It's very functional. It does all kinds of things from using a fork and knife, and they have to cut a piece of Play-Doh, and they have to put on a a cardigan, and they have to, um, you know, uh, just a bunch of different tasks that they have to do. So, um, so maybe that is worthwhile. Hmm, maybe. And I just found the Wolf motor function test on stroke engine. So I will add a link to the show notes. Yeah. It's, and it's great to say, I'm going to do this test. The problem that I have with a lot of these tests is it does take training. And, you know, f- for clinical trials, again, the Fugelmeyer, you can do it, but even with two days of training in these tests, you can still get inter-rater reliability that's all over the place. So I like the ones that involve objects, right? A specific objects like the box and block. It's you kind of can't get it wrong. The actual research arm test is you kind of can't get it wrong. It's it's easier to do the Wolf motor function test. I don't know about the but the arm motor ability test and the Fugelmeyer. There's a lot of stuff that you need to know. Well, the Wolf motor function test has 17 steps to it. Yeah, and the question is, what what kind of equipment do you need? Um, you need a table. That's a, important. Some kind of a box. Um, a one pound weight. Yeah. So is it a barbell? So- can it be a, you know, it, it, you, if you're going to standardize stuff, all of that stuff needs to be worked out. The height of the table needs to work out, be worked mm-hmm. out. But if you're a, a single clinician and you always work at the same table and you have a one pound bar, but you can do, do that so far. So good. Yeah. Yeah. You need a can, a pencil, paper. Clip. How big is the can? What kind of can? Like we've had arguments about this. Is it a tomato paste can, the really small ones or a big fat can? So you, mm-hmm. as long as you yeah. standardize it, you can, you can do that. I bet somewhere there in there, it says a six ounce can or a 12 ounce can. It sorry. To, sorry to keep you interrupting. What, what are some of the other things you need? Um, checkers, three cards, playing cards, I would imagine. Yeah. You have to check their grip strength. So you need a dynamometer. Oh boy. You have to be able to turn a key in a lock. So you need a key and a lock. That a they towel. Can ac- sorry, that they can access in sitting because, you know, if they're in a wheelchair, you're not going to be able to do the upper extremity if they're standing. Sorry, a towel. A towel. It doesn't say what size towel. And then they have to be able to lift a basket in standing. So they need to pick up a three pound basket from a chair by grasping the handles and placing it on a bed side table. Make sure you have a gate belt on, guys. Right. Hey, everybody. I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important. 
recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. So should we get back into TESOL? Until another question comes up on the Facebook page, we're looking forward to it, guys. We can do this in real time. We, we have to do this. There's a question in email too. Did what? you? What? Yeah. Oh, what's the question? Should we do well, that now? We could. This I is going to be two episodes anyway, Deb. So okay. we can go right ahead. Let me just find it. While you're doing that, can I talk about something? Sure. So one of the things that the great Dr. Tiesel said was a primer was repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. And it's not like mirror therapy or action observation or imagery. It's expensive. I think you need at least 60, 70 grand for a cheap new one. Repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is non-painful. It goes right into the brain and it's three to 5,000 magnetic pulses over a period of about 20 minutes. So yeah, that's a different basket of things. That and direct electrical stimulation to the brain, uh, which is a surgery. Then let's separate those out. I wish he hadn't stuck them together, but you know, it's it was his ball game, and and he's the expert. So they do go together in that they do prime the brain, but probably not the same in terms of the training that you need for it, and also the fact that they involve really expensive machines and or surgery. Yes, and he did talk about less expensive. Uh, brain priming activities and how simple they are to create and use. Right. And he he talked about, he went to the Far East, he did a talk on this and there were really good clinics in the cities, but in the country, they didn't have anything. And, and somebody said, well, I, I can't do this because I, we don't have a lot of money. And he said, can you buy a mirror? Yeah. He did say that. Mm-hmm. So did you find, find the question? I did. So I think it's an, uh, an easy question for you to answer. And it's from... J.E. And she is wondering, is there ever a time when spasticity turns itself off? And she acknowledges that um, it may have been addressed in the podcast episode on spasticity and apologizes if that was missed. Yeah. And I apologize if I didn't. I think we talked about it and I forgot to really nail it to the wall. You know what? I think we did that in one of our... It wasn't in that episode. I think it was in one of our um, review episode when we started talking about what we've done so far. Mm. And I think you mentioned it then. Yes, there is a time when it turns off and that's when they're sleeping. So when you, you and I fall asleep, every voluntary muscle completely relaxes. And I asked uh, Deb a question that was completely unfair that I often ask the class because it ends up with being a punchline, which is um, those are the voluntary muscles. What do they call it when the involuntary muscles uh, uh, are not working? And that's called death. It's called death. Yeah. It's a technical term. It's called death. It's very good. So yeah, but the voluntary muscles, they all completely relax. You might have a jerk where you're imagining that a truck's about to hit you and then you wake up for a second, but then you're awake when your sleep, they all completely relax. This there is one good study on it, and they found about twenty five percent of the people didn't completely relax until a little bit deeper sleep. I forget which stage. 
then that had implications for things like uh, a splinting, you, a splint that you can't get on when they're awake, you might be able to get on when they're asleep. And truly, if you want to get a real perspective on the amount of spasticity that they have, then it's good to do something like the modified Ashworth, which is a test of spasticity while they're sleeping, because that'll give you a true baseline. The other thing is if you're confused about whether something is contracture or spasticity, then if it's contracture when they're sleeping, it'll still be evident as much as it ever was. Whereas if you let them fall asleep and you can move it, then you know it's just a whole lot of spasticity because sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a four on the Ashworth, which is, you know, can't move it and true contracture. But that is a way of sort of the differential diagnosis of that. Yeah. So they want to be able to take advantage of that time when there's minimal spasticity. And I think it's kind of hard when somebody's sleeping because you'll wake them up and you need them to be awake to participate, unless, of course, you just want to apply the splint. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah. Well, so my wife, this was another joke I used to tell in my talk. So my wife would say, yeah, I, I know about the splinting. And sometimes I would sneak into their room. And I'd be very quiet. I wouldn't want to wake them. And then I would put the splint and she's a PT. So it was probably something on the lower extremity, um, a boot or something. And then I would sneak out. But that's not ethical, right? <laughs> so I'm like, right. maybe I should report you to the state board, Isla. But no, um, um, I think as long as you ask permission first, and every clinician that I told that joke to, they go, just ask first, and you're you're good. And so you can do it if they're sleeping. The Ashworth is going to probably wake them up because you remember the entire range of motion has to be done within one second. And so you're going to be moving them rapidly and that might very well wake them up. And then you're going to get a very different score. So, uh, but can you repeat the question? Because did we get all of it? I think we did. Is there a, ever a time when spasticity turns itself off? And then they would like to know because if there is ever a time when someone's spasticity is minimal, they would like to take advantage of that. Yep. Okay, good. I think we did answer that. But yeah, yeah come back with a follow-up. Can you give us the initials of the person? J-E. J-E, mm-hmm. come on back. Thank you, J-E. Thanks. That's a, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. We still have a couple of survivors who have questions and want information on topics that I think deserve an entire podcast episode, not a whole podcast, a whole podcast episode. Hey, Deb, you know, when you sometimes say, um, my brain wasn't there, my brain just wasn't there. I was going to start adopting that same voice. I'm sorry, but I wasn't there for a second. Can you repeat that? So these are questions that somebody <laughs> asked. Is that really um, what I sound like? Well, yeah, you're kind of innocent. You're like the innocent little girl in the back. I'm sorry, Miss Jones, but I was not listening. So I'm well, admitting I, yeah. I wasn't listening. So what what <laughs> what was it that you were like? Um, uh, what I was saying? trying to say. <laughs> Yeah. What was it that you were trying to say? So somebody asked a question, but you would want to do a whole episode for it? Yeah, we have a couple of survivor questions, concerns, and I think that their topics deserve entire episodes. Wait, do you have a list of these questions? In my head, I have two of them. One is on vestibular and one is on... Oh my God. So, Help for, me. so the, for the, she's making a flapping. It's the, like a, um, she's doing a, it's a mind thing where she's trapped <laughs> in a box. The thing that happened. Oh, ataxia. Ataxia. The thing that happens when the cerebellum is affected. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, ataxia. Wow. That was, that was hard. Mm. And those are, I'm not an expert on either of those. Ataxia. We're talking about like a cerebellar mm-hmm. ataxia. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be interesting. I'm um, doing a consultation with somebody who's had a cerebellar stroke here and next week. So yeah, that would be a good one to do. Mm-hmm. And the, the first one was vestibular, like loss of balance issues. Yeah. That also would be good, but we, yeah. I think we would need to research on both of those. I know I need to research and that's all I'm going to say right now. So yeah. Anything else about mm-hmm. the EBRSR or Marcus or Robert, mm-hmm. what they brought up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to the the primer thing and how a therapists are hesitant to use them. I know that in the United States, probably elsewhere, there's a, a huge focus on function. And I know in occupational therapy, we are all about occupation-based interventions. Like We should be using occupation-based interventions. But the reality is in, in stroke rehab, we need to use some of these primers. So 
I, I just wanted to acknowledge that because I, I do think that um, it is a struggle for people depending on the setting that they work in. And so I think that it's important to come up with a strategy or a plan for implementing these primers. And I did write a blog article on creating a home program and how to do that starting um, from admission into your care. So if somebody is inpatient rehab or even outpatient, you can you can adopt what I wrote to know how to implement something. And so it's it's got, I think, five different steps for what to do to kind of guide therapists in creating something with the patient so that it is client-centered and then um, developing it over time and moving them towards independence or supervision, and then not taking up clinic time to use those primers, and then having more time in the clinic to focus on function or whatever other areas need to be addressed. So this is on your, you have a blog? I wrote three blog articles on my website. There's three. Okay. And um, you're just broadly, is there something that you can Google to get to your website? Yeah. You can just um, type in creative concepts and occupational therapy, and it will take you to my website. And at the bottom of the page, there are three blog articles. I've really been busy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the beginning of school year. So you're off the (laughs) beginning of my life, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So um, it is interesting. Everybody's supposed to focus on function, Mm -hmm. but these primers help function. Yeah. It's just that it isn't the thing that drives the cortical change. It's the thing that primes the cortical change. It's kind of like we talk a lot about brain-driving neurotropic factor. That primes the brain. And maybe some of these bring out some some BDNF as well. So, But do you necessarily think that the primer should be done offline, like back in the room or at home? I think that if it's a primer like mirror therapy or um, the thinking one, help me. Oh, mental imagery, um, even the action observation. I think if you are, um, if you can set it up properly, yes, I do think that you should. I think you should start in the clinic so that you're using your skill to get the person set up properly and to understand how it should be used and then gradually move them towards doing that independently while you're still present in their care. You can check on them. You can ask them for their feedback and input and um, make sure that you answer any questions that they might have to make to be sure that they're using those interventions properly because we want them to do that at home. And then that also gives you the opportunity to make those modifications that you always talk about to help move them through any plateau that might happen afterwards or help them to know how to think about things should they get stuck so that they don't have to stay stuck. You don't want to stay stuck. No. And if somebody needs supervision, then then you, you know that you're going to have to pull in a caregiver of some sort. And it's better to know that during inpatient rehab, then you send them on their way and they're not able to follow through with that at home and then they they get stuck sooner. Mm. Yeah. Caregivers. Yeah, absolutely. So let me go through these one by one and see if you have a problem with somebody trying to do this at home. You ready? Mm-hmm. Bilateral arm training. I think they should be doing that at home. Simple stuff that you can do is like drums. You can mm-hmm. drum. That's bilateral arm training. It's either in phase or anti-phase. That is equal and opposite or equal in the same time. Okay. Use towels to slide the arms across the table in any you know forward and back direction. So there are ways to grade or modify the activity so that it's appropriate for what the person is able to do. You can tap your feet. Tap your feet. Yep. March mm-hmm. in place. That's, yep. that's bilateral training. The idea is that the intact side will in real time make your movement better on the affected side and that primes the brain. Okay. What about um, mental practice at home or do you need to be there with them? Um, At home. I think that you could use some of the recordings from your website and you could also create some more client-centered ones for the person if you wanted to, to um, add in that salience piece. Okay. Yeah. So my website is an easy way to find it, but they're not on my website. So this is what you do. Yeah. Um, So it's actually- On your your blog. I thought they were- Well, so it's it's on Sabo's website. And I'm not sure how to hunt hunt for it there, but if you go to my blog, so if you Google stronger after stroke blog, first hit, and then when you get to the first page, you just click on the, it's on the 
upper right-hand corner, you'll see uh, recordings for mental imagery or mental practice. I forget exactly what it is. Yeah. And And that's really effective to use with mirror therapy before engaging in a mirror therapy program. Is to do mental imagery? Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. So it's two great tastes that taste great together and not caramel? Mm-hmm. That, that's an old, sorry. Um, caramel okay. and peanut butter. Car- caramel, peanut butter. And what was the other flavor? Peanut butter, caramel, chocolate. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I think we're getting hungry. <laughs> Um, okay. So we have uh, bilateral arm training, mental practice. What about action observation? Could they do that at home? Can you give us an example of how they might use observing somebody else do a movement for the upper extremity uh, after a brain injury? Like, What would it look like at home if they did it? You could watch somebody um, reach in a cupboard and take dishes down to prepare to set the table. You could so watch. How, how would you find that? Like, are you going to say to your caregiver, do it again, do it again. Listen, Honey, here's what no. I need you to do. <laughs> I need you to set the table for dinner, but wait until I can get in a spot where I can see you do it because this is going to help me get better. So they should be observing all of those movements. And remember your, your brain lights up in this, in a very similar way to the way that their brain is lighting up when they're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And you can watch all, somebody walk across the, the room. Yeah. I wonder if there's a repetitive component to this and I should know this. Like oh. if you want to, if your thing was, I really want to be able to, to get my arm to put a cup back in the cupboard, should that be observed repetitively? Yeah. And I think that's when uh, video recordings come into play. And that's what the research talked about in that one article that I found when we talked about something, one episode that I don't remember. Um, we talked about action observation and there was an article did. that did it repetitively. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like you could take one video of your caregiver doing whatever it is that you want to train for, and then you'd have it on your phone. You could watch it over and over. It's not super exciting. We get that. Mirror therapy may not be super exciting. Um, mental practice may not be super exciting, but you know they don't have to be done at some particular dosage, 45 minutes twice a day. It could be done for five minutes. Do you, as an expert in mirror therapy, what kind of dosages do you recommend like per day? Well, mirror therapy is most effective if it's done for 20 minutes, twice a day, five times, at least five times a week. I mean, if you miss it, if you miss a, an episode like in a day, it's not going to be harmful. If you do it once a day, it's still going to be better than doing it no times a day. Or if you do it 10 minutes rather than 20 minutes twice right. a day, maybe you can yeah. get away with that. Mm-hmm. Hey, Pete, you know what's great about podcasts? Well, a lot of things. You have a world of different options. You can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone, so you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house. Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? That when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks to beg for money. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh, what? We're about to do the same thing. You know how much work we put into this, the research, the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through, the websites, the equipment, the editing. We just need a little help. Well, how can people help? Through Venmo. We have a Venmo account and any little bit will help. Our Venmo address is at Neurons because of course it is. At Neurons? How much do you think people should give? About a million dollars. Come on. Okay, like $500? Are you serious? $50? Let's just put it this way. Every little bit helps. If you want to support Noggins and Neurons' effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery, then $1 million to add neurons. And here's some good news. 20% of everything we get will go to the Brain Injury Association of America, which helps individuals who've had a brain injury, family caregivers, and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and treatment.
There was another one he talked about, and I was surprised. When we looked at it before, I didn't see that the EBRSR said it worked, or I couldn't find independent. Anyways, electromyography biofeedback. When you move a muscle, you can see it because the limb moves. However, sometimes you can do it so little that you can still see the muscle moving, even though the limb's not moving. And then there's something that therapists call trace movement, where they put their fingertips over the belly of the muscle and they try to do that. And then, but then there's even lower than that. And that's when electromyography can pick it up, surface electrodes. Then there's even lower than that, where they put indwelling fine wire electrodes right into the belly of the muscle. And that's usually as a diagnostic thing for uh, pretty serious neurological disorders. But with surface electrodes, you can have an EMG machine that shows the muscle firing, even though you can't necessarily feel it. So these, this is how sensitive these things are. And I have a machine right here on the floor next to me, a company Zynex that does uh, EMG-based electrical stimulation machine. And it will pick up you thinking about a movement. Remember, in mental practice, when you think about a movement, the muscles fire in the same order, in the same duration as if you actually do it. That muscle firing, even though it, you're not really moving, just the thinking of the movement will can be picked up by the EMG. So the beauty here is you can start to do repetitive practice before you can quote move. Your brain is being activated and your muscles are being activated in some way. So that's what they're talking about when they talk about EMG biofeedback. What I don't like about this one is now we're starting to bend into something that's a rather expensive technology. Mm-hmm. I, I I keep looking it up because I always thought it would be a great idea to get people to do repetitive practice before they can actually move. And they're pricey. I'll, I'll look it up and um, I don't know. What do you what do you think of that? And I'll, why, while you're talking, I'm going to look this up, see if I can find one on Amazon. Well, first of all, I don't remember that part of the conversation. Let me just clarify that. Um, I, I agree with you on the cost of things. And I think that's where maybe the mental practice or mental imagery could come into play and be beneficial and just trust that your mind has some capabilities for helping your body heal. That's what super survivor Kathy Spencer used some of some and throughout. Didn't she talk about that for her recovery? Like she used some mental practice and um, trained her body to move. I really stumbled over that. That was hard for me to say. The girl in the back is having problems with her mouth and her brain. (laughs) (laughs) That was really hard. Yeah. I'll look up EMG machine and try to put something in the show notes. But there's there's expensive machines that do it. And then after the, the mirror therapy, the action observation, the imagery, bilateral arm training, bilateral leg training, and whatever else I'm forgetting, we turn a hard corner into stuff that's very expensive and or involves surgery. And we don't suggest you do that at home. Your if own you, surgery? Yeah. yeah. I mean, once you get in there, the, here's the, the good news. Once you get into where the brain is, it, the brain can't feel anything. So you can do whatever you want, but get through the skull. That's going to piss them off a little bit. Yeah. So be careful. Yeah. He said to try one primer and one facilitator. So it would be one of these primers that we're talking about. And then strength training, specific exercises, trunk training. He put constraint-induced therapy in that category. You know what else he mentioned when he was talking about constraint-induced therapy is it might have a cognitive component to it. I I remember that line, yeah. Which um, a lot of things do have the cognitive component to them. And I would argue that if somebody has to think and problem solve through something, there's going that's better for them. But it could cause more fatigue. It's the fatigue factor from working so hard to think about something. I think I'm trying to figure out if there's anything I'm missing mm-hmm. on my list of things to do. Well, the facilitators, now that you brought that up, we should probably mention that, what that is. So were those the two categories? We had the primers and the facilitators. And then there's this other category of going after things that were like pain and spasticity. And that was sort of a different issue. But yeah, because he said that those are often addressed with pharmaceuticals. Yep. And and it was funny. It was an offhanded sort of swipe at Allergan, the company that makes Botox. He goes, mm-hmm. yeah, they got a big brother there that's really pushing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's elegant. Mm-hmm. I like it when people in high-level positions make those little comments. Yep. We all know what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. So I did have one thing. Did you want to go over what the facilitators were or those actual treatments? I don't really know if I can. So I- <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen the look on her face. That was hilarious. Okay. So um, I think what we're talking about is primers and then treatments. What we call classically call treatments that a OT or a PT would do. Oh, Okay. I could probably talk about those. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's all we really need to talk about. I think I did have one other (laughs) thing. I'm not saying I wanted to. (laughs) Okay, good. Then you're off the hook. The other thing was, I don't know if you remember the discussion about um, in the EBRSR, the bullet points, what may, may not, um, and mixed and those kinds of things meant. And I, I wrote it down from what Marcus, so this was Marcus talking and he said, if the intervention that's the experiment, like let's say, I don't know, Easton versus the standard of care, if it beats it 66% of the time, he said they would use the word may or can. So this kind of was interesting to me because remember when we talked about the upper extremity, the only thing that hit the threshold of can, the only one where they used the word can was mirror therapy. But he said that didn't matter. Yeah. Which I, I thought then use one word or the other. I mean, don't confuse. I'm like, it says can. So it must be something else. He sees no distinction between can and may. So if it's may 66% of the time or more, that intervention beats the standard of care. If it beats the competition someplace between 50 and 66%, so that's half to two thirds, they call it conflicting or mixed. And if it beats the competition less than 50%, then they say it may not. So just so you know where that breaks down, and I don't know, I should put that in the show notes because I know I'm going to forget about it, but gosh. Um, And then, sorry, one other thing. So the, what was it? The network, the thing that they were working on, I knew I was going to forget this word. I don't know because I didn't get to listen to this part two yet. I mean, I guess I I could have the unedited version, but I never know what's going to stay and go. Okay. So, well, I don't cut that much. Do you find that I cut that much? I have no idea. I cut, um, uh, uh, like a lot of people, I, so when I get that, I get rid of that. Oh, like when I, when I fumble over my words, no, you leave those in there. Do I? You do. (laughs) If it's funny, (laughs) if it's funny, it stays. That was the rule. Um, yeah, I cut, I did once cut and I'll probably cut this as a matter of fact, I cut one (laughs) out of the one where I was talking about amyloid beta and stuff. Cause I just totally Mm. screwed up the science so badly. And I've, I've cut a couple of your things where I think I've, I've taken out a couple of things where it's like, I don't, I did, that doesn't feel comfortable, yeah, but, um, but typically I, I tend to leave just about everything, but sometimes I'll do this truncate silence where there's long gaps of silence, but I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we should talk about. Can you think of anything or should we, um, can we um, let the gosh. people go? Well, I had a thought when you were just mentioning the previous thought the girl, <laughs> and I don't know what it was. Oh, it was with the, um, the different percentages and what means conflicting and doesn't or does. That's why I think that it's important to look at the individual studies. If it's something that's conflicting, then look at the studies and see what they're looking at because not all studies are designed the same and they're not testing the exact same things against each other. So that's that's how I look at the conflicting ones now that I've learned a little bit more. Okay, yeah. So you can always go into the original studies and see see what's mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that's all I got. Click Facebook off. Just get out of there. Wait, there's one more. Just kidding. <laughs> kids don't forget to uh join the facebook group be part of the conversation don't be a wallflower sitting on the side just listening it's a little creepy come on in and uh other than that uh try to have some fun yeah thanks for listening okay guys thanks a (laughs) lot go have some fun thank you so much for listening to this episode We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.